peculiar time of the year when it's to know where you are and why you have been kidnapped. Well, the Bridge of Sighs. The guys who works here went psycho. Welcome to October by May. The short stories of Edward T. May. Presented by James Allen May. How do you deal with change? When you see a big change on the horizon, are you able to prepare yourself? Would you consider yourself adaptable once the change arrives? In the years following a big change, are you able to accurately recall what life was like before? Our trio of stories today offer us a window into how three individuals grapple with global change. One who sees it coming, one who tries to survive the chaos of change, and one who lives far into the future when the old ways of life are barely remembered. These tales were not written with the intent of connecting them, so you'll forgive my editorial indulgence. Yet I couldn't help but sense the common thread they shared, and I don't think I need to explain the reason I found the concept of great global change cathartic to explore. We have all tried to learn and adapt, but what would you have done if you'd known in advance that change was coming? What if the world itself had warned you? Languages It looked as if a night of dark intent was coming, and not only a night, an age. Robert Frost, Once by the Pacific I can assure you my motivation for writing this is purely selfish. It is intended to clear my conscience. When some type of disaster does occur, I can make the valid claim I issued a warning, however vague. Afterwards, assuming the warning was ignored, I can truthfully say I made the attempt. To be honest, I'm not sure what preparations I myself will take. How do you prepare for a disaster when you don't know the exact nature of the cataclysm? I've often wondered how others will react. Will there be widespread hoarding of food and water? Will people suddenly become more courteous to strangers? Will some commit as much crime as time permits? Unfortunately, the potential exists for any type of behavior from the sublime to the despicable. I'm sure we'll witness the entire spectrum. Now to the difficult part. I must convince you there's a reason to prepare. Upon retirement, Brandy and I moved from the city into what we affectionately called the Twix, a plot of land located between the town and the sticks. Our new home bordered a region unspoiled by developers, a stream wandered lazily through this marshy area, bounded by trees and grasses. During thunderstorms, the stream became eager to arrive at its destination, brusquely shouldering its way along. But for most of the time, it was unhurried in its pace, as it patiently skirted sandbars and traced every inch of oxbow without seeking a shortcut. Our life mimicked the unhurried pace of the river as we cultivated hobbies such as painting and gardening. On summer nights and on the balmy eaves in the spring and autumn, we took our ease on the deck overlooking the marshy landscape. Brandy would paint or read, 
while I would be content to gaze at the scenery spread before me and listen to the many sounds to be heard. Insects, birds, the wind as it skillfully dodged between blades of grass and lovingly caressed the veins of leaves. These were the sounds I listened to. It was a relaxing and satisfying existence. After a few years had passed, I began to notice a distinct change in my surroundings. Not to the visible surroundings, but rather the atmosphere. How can I best describe this change? It was a mixture. No, that's not quite the word for it. An overlay, perhaps. No, I think coexistence is a more accurate description. Yes, coexistence will do nicely. The atmosphere was a coexistence of the old and the new. Like, I don't know, like a contemporary sculpture chiseled out of an ancient bedrock. Maybe a better analogy would be a snake shedding its skin, because I received the distinct impression the coexistence was temporary. This modification of the atmosphere wasn't the only change I noticed. The sounds I'd been listening to assumed a different quality as well. I soon came to believe this second change was in direct response to the first change I've mentioned. In what manner did the sounds change? It's rather difficult to explain. The insect noises seemed to possess a greater... urgency than previously. By urgency, I don't necessarily mean the sounds came faster. The crickets, for instance, chirped louder, more resolutely. The usual throbbing of the cicadas leveled off into a uniform buzzing. The wind passed over the landscape with a slightly diminished enthusiasm. The rustling of the grasses was subdued. You may have believed my story so far, but at this juncture in my narration, I'm sure my credibility will be stretched to the breaking point. Now, I must tell you of the greatest change of all I experienced. I recognized the sounds around me as part of a language, and I began to understand this language. Imagine you visit a country where they speak a language you are completely unfamiliar with. After the passage of time, you couldn't help but understand a few of the more commonly used words. So it was for me. I began learning a new language, a language spoken by the crickets and cicadas. Even the wind as it passed over the weeds had a dialect of its own. It was a language just as real as the one I employed on a daily basis, but without the use of words. With fluctuations in pitch, tone, and frequency, these sounds were capable of conveying impressions and mental images. To those of you who scoff at this description, I would ask you to consider for a moment dogs. A pet never uses words, but his owner knows when his pet is angry, hungry, in pain, etc. Every whine doesn't have the same meaning, Similarly, every chirp from a cricket does not have the same meaning. The watershed event came one night in early autumn, as a full moon illuminated the landscape. My own impressions of the vista were haunting and beautiful as I viewed the scene from my deck. Then, a soft breeze played across the grass and weeds, and as I heard the dry stalks chafe one another, I received a vivid, I might even say overpowering, sense of fulfillment. As the wind abated and the vegetation once again grew silent, the sense of fulfillment was lost. This was not imagination. 
This fleeting sense of fulfillment was actually an impression I received from the grasses and weeds when they were set in motion by the wind. Shortly after this event, I remembered reading about a series of experiments, beginning in the 1960s, involving plants and how they react to certain stimuli. By some unknown means, the plants were able to communicate with other forms of life. This biocommunication, as it came to be known, was not recognized by the mainstream scientific community due to the difficulty in reproducing results. In the world of science, repeatability is everything. The man who pioneered the experiments warned other researchers of the need for spontaneity. In other words, if the experiment is not spontaneous, the results may be altered by the consciousness of the researcher. Do I believe this type of communication is the same as I experienced? No, I do not. The point is, a type of biocommunication has been shown to exist, and where one type exists, then another may exist as well. After all, there is more than one way to exchange thoughts, feelings, opinions, ideas, and emotions. We communicate by speaking and writing, by sign language and braille, by Morse code and pictographs, by winks and nods and body language, and let us not forget communication via scent or pheromones. You will no doubt say, humans communicating with each other is a different story entirely. We have brains and nervous systems and whatnot. The members of the animal kingdom have drastically reduced brain power, and the members of the plant kingdom have no such capacity. And even should I concede the possibility of communication between plants, that is hardly in the same league as plant-to-human communication. I have no answer for such an argument, except direct experience. I began to wonder, how many times in the past had emotions been conveyed to me by the world around me, and, in my ignorance, were misinterpreted by me to be my own? How often have people been influenced unknowingly by their surroundings? How often have you been in a bad mood, and then for no apparent reason your emotions underwent a reversal? Of course I didn't tell anyone. It didn't take any special vision, any gift of prediction to see into that future. I'd be burdened with the moniker of Dr. Doolittle for the rest of my life at best, and at worst I'd be locked up in the state mental hospital. I couldn't understand why, apparently, only I could understand. I'd heard of people obtaining special abilities, ESP and the like, after car accidents or a similar type of traumatic experience, but I didn't fall into that category. Neither did I fit the mold of nature boy. I didn't feel I was uniquely attuned to Mother Earth. I ate meat and drove a car and burned real wood in the fireplace, polluting the environment as much as the next guy. As a matter of fact, I didn't fall into any category except average. Looking back on it, I don't think my understanding was due to any special ability on my part. I'm equally convinced it wasn't because I was situated in some conjunction of time and space, some vortex that only appeared in select locations. I now believe I was able to understand this... language, due to the simple fact I did what other people didn't do. I listened. I listened to the wind and the water and the bugs, not because I held any special affinity with brother wind or sister water, but because I thought they were pleasant sounds. As we would have said when we were kids, the sounds were neat. Think about it. How many times have you been wholeheartedly involved in one activity, watching television for instance, while at the same time someone was trying to tell you something? They might as well have been speaking a foreign language, 
because you didn't understand a word they said. When Brandy was outside in the evenings, she was reading, painting, talking, doing any one of a dozen other things. Her mind was elsewhere. She wasn't concentrating on her surroundings. All the trees, cattails, crickets, they were mere props as far as she was concerned. The whole package was, for her, just a background. A beautiful background, certainly, but a background nevertheless. It was different for me. I went out there to focus on those sounds. Then it struck me that maybe I wasn't the only one to understand what was going on. Maybe the pagans, too, had listened and heard. Perhaps this was the origin of their belief in the spirits of the woods and waters. They listened to Mother Nature, Mother Earth, spoke to them just as she spoke to animals, warning them of an approaching storm or an imminent earthquake. I began to understand some other things as well. I knew crop circles, for instance, weren't made by aliens, and they definitely weren't hoaxes. They were just another manifestation of the same force I was witnessing. It was a force of nature. It was an elemental force of nature. And it was talking to us, trying to tell us... What? As I noted earlier, I perceived a variation in the atmosphere, a coexistence of the old and the new, a temporary coexistence. I also mentioned the sounds of nature underwent a definite alteration in response to this modified atmosphere. Everything I heard told me changes on the way, and it amounts to a complete reordering, a shuffling of the deck. Just how this will happen is beyond me. Will it involve a celestial body impacting the earth? Will a devastating plague arise out of a swamp, or, more probably, out of a weapons laboratory? Will it be an all-consuming war? Who can say for sure in what form it will appear? You can be sure of one thing. It's a big change. And it's coming soon. If you don't believe me, and I'm sure you don't, just listen for yourself. Perhaps our narrator should have done more than simply write his account. Perhaps he should have taken the risk of ridicule in order to warn the world and made as much noise as he could about the coming catastrophe. But would it have worked? Would anyone have listened? Would you have listened? I have my doubts. Unfortunately for our next protagonist, he is in the midst of living in the immediate aftermath of some such event. He is alone navigating his way through a society that has lost its humanity. A world turned upside down. It was a world turned upside down. Rodrigo was still a little hazy on how it all started, but after all, who wouldn't be? It had happened so long ago, not as reckoned by time, but as reckoned by the mind. Had a pandemic initiated the collapse of civilization? Perhaps it had been a series of natural disasters or, more probably, a global conflict. It really didn't matter. Not to what little remained of the Earth's population, and certainly not to Rodrigo, 
because the original cause had long since ceased to be a determining factor in the day-to-day functioning of society. Clichés died along with the bulk of humanity, and the first cliché to perish dealt with the paramount importance of survival. Survival was no longer the primary concern of those left standing. It had degenerated by swift degrees to the status of hobby. The main focus became a search, a methodical, all-encompassing, scientific investigation to find the type of death offering the least amount of unpleasantness. Survival was merely a means to that end. This new, odd, silly little world was so confusing, being composed as it was of a jumble of oppositional notions. Trying to squeeze any understanding out of it was like attempting to assemble a jigsaw puzzle of the same picture from a dozen different boxes, each box containing pieces of varying sizes and cut patterns. Only a small portion of the human race remained, and yet Rodrigo seemed to encounter other people wherever he went. Rodrigo both yearned for human contact and dreaded it. He put all his effort into survival, but would have welcomed death. None of it made sense. It was an idiot's delight. It took some getting used to, this world of slyly distorted concepts. Time had suddenly changed from the abstract to the concrete. Time no longer consisted of minutes and hours and days. It was measured in units of rationed food and footsteps and the thickness of settled dust. Regret, too, became manifest. Regret became calories expended in futile searches for additional calories. Regret was seen and smelled in each bead of sweat and drop of urine as precious moisture was lost. Everything seemed to operate in reverse. It was also backward and otherworldly, like painting a picture while looking into a mirror or writing a novel using a non-dominant hand. It was a world of inverted logic, a land of opposite think. Rodrigo perceived this aspect of the situation very quickly. Few survived who didn't. He soon reasoned it was far safer to search for supplies during the hours of darkness and dedicate the daylight hours to sleep. Evil owned the day. Murder, rape, cannibalism had all become day jobs. A complete reversal of how things had been. How things were before. Before... Whatever it was that happened had happened. Everyone, from the smallest child to withered centenarians, knew evil was a product of the darkness. Even the imaginary evils, werewolves and vampires and whatnot, dwelled in shadowy corners and feared the light. No longer, as sickness and corruption danced on the street corners and openly performed wicked mimes in the public square for all to see. Perhaps most debilitating of all, This strange, new world was filled with shocking images deftly overlaid on familiar, unexceptional backdrops. Both image and background immediately recognizable to the beholder, and yet incongruous, even insidious, when placed side by side. Like the time Rodrigo passed the huge chain store with the smiling yellow faces, assuring him he would find the lowest prices within, while in the weedy expanse abutting the store, Someone had neatly affixed the heads of the Johnson family on sharpened stakes set in the ground. Eric and Judy Johnson and their two children 
had lived just two doors down from Rodrigo. He knew them well. Eric and Rodrigo had worked side by side, shoveling snow during the infamous November blizzard. They'd helped each other string Christmas lights and watch their children play together on long summer evenings. Rodrigo stopped as that thought crossed his mind. It implied he, Rodrigo, had a wife and family at one time, but he didn't dare go there because he did not currently have a wife and family, and he didn't want to think about why that was so. That memory, in whatever cemetery it lay, was best left buried. He reconnected with the Johnson family in front of him, their bulging eyes and swollen tongues. Flies loitered. In the background, the unperturbed yellow faces smiled serenely. These jarring, conflicting visions were becoming more common. Rodrigo began seeing them once a day instead of once a week. A faithful, floppy-eared basset hound feeding on the carcass of its master. As though discussing a collection of baseball cards, a group of prepubescent boys brag about their collection of human scalps. National Guard troops using the residents of a nursing home as targets. Each tableau seared into Rodrigo's memory like a smoking brand, each one having a cumulative effect on his sanity. How many of these horrors would he be capable of absorbing before he could take no more? How long before he bragged about his own scalp collection or joined the National Guard troops at target practice? These jolting pastiches were obviously abnormal, at least for the moment. The danger they bore to an individual's mental health was evident. It was not always so in this Dali-esque world. Quite often, things seemed seductively normal. And there lay the real danger. Once, while headed home after a night of scavenging, Rodrigo cut through the park in his neighborhood just after sunrise and came across what appeared to be a party of some kind. Open-sided tents had been set up in a number of places. People were laughing and joking and discussing commonplace subjects like the weather. Rodrigo could see smoke curling lazily off the barbecue grills tended by the women. The men were enjoying beers, and the children were playing tag and other games. A picnic, Rodrigo thought, just like it used to be. At last... A group of normal people trying to be normal again. Rodrigo found the scene entrancing, hypnotic. Momentarily off his guard, he walked slowly toward the gathering. Eventually, a few people noticed Rodrigo. Gentle nudges began turning more and more faces in his direction. Conversations stopped. As the children saw the adults behaving differently, they sensed something was wrong. Their shrieks and laughter diminished as well, until the only sound to be heard was the meat spitting and hissing on the grills. Rodrigo, smiling amiably, stopped a few feet away from the first pavilion. No one smiled in return. The people wore masks of fear, suspicion, hatred. Rodrigo had entertained the hope they would ask him to join them, no such invitation was forthcoming. What's wrong? Rodrigo wondered. Roasting meat spat fat on Rodrigo's arm. He flinched and reflexively looked down at the offending cut of meat. Then he understood. He backed away, shotgun leveled. 
Had he not been heavily armed, Rodrigo knew he would have ended up spitting and hissing on the grills as well. Rodrigo realized, after the face-off with the cannibal picnickers, he needed to divorce himself entirely from the rest of the world. Rodrigo began by asking himself some questions. Is there a place left in the city where no one bothers to go anymore? A place everyone considers unimportant because it does not have food, water, alcohol, clothing, or supplies of any kind? Is there a place where there are no women to be found and raped? It wasn't working. Rodrigo couldn't think. Rather, that was the problem. He was thinking. He was using thinking, and not inverted thinking. In a world turned upside down, only inverted thinking seemed to work. So, Rodrigo revised his questions and asked them again. I used to feel safe in the places I'm afraid of now. So, I should feel safe in the places I used to be afraid of. What place did I fear at one time? Where did I feel scared? Back before any of this began, back a long time ago, when I was a child, when I was easily frightened. Boyhood images flashed, tweaking memories. Bad memories, which is what Rodrigo was after. Only bad memories could provide an acceptable solution. Rodrigo almost had his answer. Almost, but not quite. And who do I fear now? I'm afraid of everyone. I must fear everyone. It's the only way to be sure of staying alive. I'm afraid of everyone unless they're... And Rodrigo had his answer. Inverted reasoning had birthed a unique conclusion, revealing the only logical place to live in the post-cataclysmic, topsy-turvy world. The only place to live was among the dead. Rodrigo wasted no time in moving to the cemetery. After the first night in his new home, just as dawn was breaking and Rodrigo was preparing for sleep, he opened his Bible. He could depend on the Bible. It was unchanging, stable, dependable, reliable. It was verted, not inverted like the rest of the world. He began to read at random. Then they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And as he stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he lived not in a house, but among the tombs. At first, Rodrigo was uncertain he'd read the passage correctly. He reread the words, lingering over them, dissecting them, as he carefully peeled back the layers of syllabic flesh. When he finished, he laughed but he laughed silently because laughing out loud was dangerous. Laughing out loud could be fatal. Considering the present state of affairs, the passage was deliciously ironic. For Rodrigo lived among the tombs, yet he was clothed and in his right mind. It was the people in the city who were possessed of demons, who practiced cannibalism and murder and other evils. They lived in houses, and went for long periods of time with no clothes as they made a study of debauchery. How else could it be in a world turned upside down? Rodrigo continued laughing, silently, of course, until tears rolled down his cheeks. Or were the tears born of sorrow 
anymore. Rodrigo couldn't tell. Finally, what of the world of the future? Will it bear any resemblance to our current one? Can we return to our old ways of life? Or will we forever be changed, perverted, distorted? Can we ever return to who we once were? Or will we learn that sanity is a thing of the past? Sentences from Chalk Dust Steely tears leaked from a sodden sky as Donald watched the sea drag its swollen body shoreward on gray, wrinkled limbs. He'd arrived just after the noon hour, alone, trying to make sense of the senseless. But with darkness only inches away, he was no closer to solving the paradox. He still could not understand how it was possible to feel so utterly abandoned and at the same time appear to be at the nexus of time and space, to be both pariah and savior. He wanted desperately to help his people, but wasn't sure if the sacrifice he was expected to make would be of any value to them. He closed his eyes and hoped the soothing sound of the surf would impart some measure of peace, thus helping him bring order out of chaotic thoughts. Donald had been chosen to participate in the ritual, along with 30 others. A great honor, or so he'd been told. After all, the priest continually assured the people the dutiful performance of the ritual ensured a fruitful harvest. But the priest's assurances lacked conviction, offered as they were with thin-lipped smiles pasted loosely over grimaces of uncertainty. For the ritual was ancient, originating not just from the before our father's time, but from the before the many wars time, and there was much that remained unknown and unknowable. One of the few aspects of the ritual universally accepted as authentic by priests and laymen alike was the fact it had always been observed in the autumn. The time of year for the ritual had remained a constant down through the ages. This much was undisputed. The purpose of the ceremony was a different matter entirely. Most people, and not a few of them priests, asked themselves if the true purpose of the ritual was indeed to ensure a bountiful harvest. They suspected that notion had evolved over time, owing to the fact the ritual had always been performed in the autumn, coincidentally, at the same time as the harvest. There was certainly room for doubt in their minds if there was any connection at all between the ritual and harvest. It wasn't just the purpose of the ritual that remained obscure. Some were certain the rite itself had changed greatly since its origin. It was no secret many of the old ways had been forgotten completely during the time of the many wars, while not a few others had been perverted into things they were never intended to be. Some said the mutation of the ritual had been so vast that a person used to practicing it in the era before the many wars would not recognize the ritual enacted by Donald and his people. Such thoughts were never openly voiced, but whispered furtively, certainly no louder than the rustle of spiders' legs over dusty sills. It was feared the gods, who are not to be named, those who rule over the harvest, would view these musings as an offense. But no one could deny, priests included, there were certain things about the ceremony that defied explanation. 
the purpose of the sack made out of rough cloth, the meaning of the sacred words, and the reason for 31 participants remained mysteries, frozen in the bedrock of time like the fossils of fantastic creatures. The wise priests remained silent on the subject, while the foolish ones felt compelled to offer vague speculations, only proving how unenlightened they really were on such weighty matters. Donald wished he could speak with someone who'd participated in the ritual, but participants were forbidden to speak of the experience. Donald knew of the strange habits some had developed, habits that Donald realized did not bode well for him. Many of them would turn in complete circles every few paces, as though making sure no one, or no thing, was stalking them. Others had become terrified of the darkness, and kept lights burning continually throughout the night. Some spoke nothing but gibberish, and there were those who no longer spoke at all. Donald opened his eyes. He enjoyed watching the sea, and marveled at its tenacity, at how its foamy talons clawed at the beach before collapsing and falling back in disarray, but always returning, always making the attempt. A hot pulse of anxiety erased such thoughts as he noticed the failing light. He knew the ceremony would soon begin. He knew if he didn't appear at the agreed-upon place by nightfall, a priest would come looking for him. Such a circumstance would be unseemly and bring shame upon his family. He reluctantly pried his eyes from the sea and made his way through streets choked with leaves and perfumed with wood smoke. Donald was the last to arrive at the agreed-upon place, the village cemetery. Awaiting him were the thirty other participants and a handful of priests. His fellow participants sat listlessly on tombstones or rude benches made of splintering wood. As Donald neared the gathering, the priests, with fragile smiles and condescending attitudes, began passing out the sacks made of rough cloth. Once the priests had performed this simple task, they left, and the participants began circulating noiselessly through the silent, darkened streets. Although the mist was cold, Donald was glad for the rain. He tilted his head heavenward and allowed the drops of water to mingle with his tears until the two became one, cleverly disguising his anguish. Silhouetted against the spongy clouds were webs of branches stripped of flesh forming dark and ineffectual sutures on an oozing wound determined to bleed out before morning. Donald clutched the damp sack tightly. Fear and frustration and the awful ache of indecision animating his hands as they ruthlessly twisted the neck of the sack as though hoping to wring the last drop of moisture locked in the fabric free from its unwholesome prison. The coarse material of the sack was the type that made bearskin itch and it smelled of dark secrets locked away in hidden basements and unused attics. It was a useless prop, more of an impediment than talisman, but it was part of the ritual, and as such, had to be endured. Donald glanced to his left and saw his friend, Bobby, walking hesitantly toward one of the houses on the next block before quickly losing nerve and reversing his course then doing his best to camouflage his shameful actions by making a show of shuffling through a mound of leaves, his jittery actions a painful mirroring of Donald's irresolute thoughts. Donald noticed another friend, Ash Lee, taking baby steps along the sidewalk in the opposite direction 
while darting glances at the shadows between houses, hoping her intuition would lead her unerringly to a door she would eventually walk away from. Donald's stomach rebelled at the act, but he picked a house at random and walked unsteadily up the path and to the door, not knowing what lurked beyond, not knowing if he would live to knock on a second. But Donald was not alone in his ignorance, for none of the 31 participants knew if they would live through the night. It was true that most of the rituals were performed without the loss of life, but it was not uncommon for deaths to occur. On one rare night, in the Before Our Father's time, it was rumored that all 31 participants had perished horribly. The uncertainty of living through the night was part of the rite. In fact, the uncertainty was the pivotal element in the ceremony, because uncertainty bred fear, and fear was essential. It was also the reason for the requirement that all the participants be eight years of age. Eight-year-olds were easily scared, and there must be fear. The fear was the offering. It was the incense of fear, wafting along on autumnal night winds that pleased the gods who were not to be named. It was their nectar. It was rumored if one listened closely during the ceremony, the nameless gods could be heard sucking greedily on the terror generated by the 31 children involved. Donald's knuckles struck the weathered wood once. It was a short, reluctant rap. Donald hoped it would be loud enough to be heard in the silence, yet remain below the threshold indicative of impertinence. He did not wish to give offense to whoever, or whatever, was hiding within. As the door slowly opened, shadows seeped stealthily from within the house and joined their impatient brethren clustered about in the moonless night. They immediately began to revel in their element, forming grotesque arabesques and hideous contours vaguely suggestive of the shelled and tentacled creatures once found in prehistoric oceans. Set free from their bondage, the shadows would continue to prance and caper until morning, when a muted sun would grudgingly begin its task of peeling back the darkness like flayed skin. The door, half open, was a silent invitation for Donald to enter, to readily accept whatever awaited him for the good of his people. The best outcome possible would be to suffer through terrors that beggared description and still retain a semblance of sanity. The outcome to be dreaded most was not death, but rather a lifetime of lunacy having its genesis in a darkened doorway. This he had been told. This he knew. This he finally accepted. Before sidling through the slice of darkness, Donald breathlessly intoned the sacred words. Words he knew must have contained profound knowledge or learning in some far-off time. He yearned to know the meaning behind them, particularly if they were to be the last words he was destined to utter. But used in the present tense, the phrase was an empty husk, its original sense dissolved forever in the ocean of time, and trying to obtain meaning from it was like trying to resurrect sentences from chalk dust. <laughs> Trick or treat? Once again, I'm James Allen May, 
and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of October by May. October by May is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes every other Tuesday. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single sojourn into October. Please leave us a rating and review, as well as any comments or replies that you may have for us. Also visit us at OctoberByMay.com for more info, as well as links to the books by Edward T. May. Languages. A world turned upside down. Sentences from Chalk Dust. By Edward T. May. Recitation and audio design by James Allen May. Theme by Hassan Nazari Rabadi.